From the silver screen to the printed page to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures. It turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Matsky, and this is Monster Study Group. Hello there, and welcome. We're in the home stretch of what I've been calling the Son of Summer, and I'm very pleased that the subject of today's study is 1967's Son of Godzilla. The tropical setting of this movie seems strangely appropriate. As this is being recorded and posted in early August here in Northeast Ohio, it's been hot and humid for days on end. We're going to get into our analysis of Son of Godzilla pretty quickly, but I just wanted to follow up on something I reported last episode, which is that G-Fest is currently a go for next summer. Since then, the G-Fest hotel opened for booking and convention registration opened as well. To learn more and even make your own plans, head over to g-fan.com or look for the official G-Fest page on Facebook. In preparation to record this study session, I thumbed through a number of issues of G-Fan from across its run, and I was reminded that my writing has ended up in its pages from time to time. I'm a little bit proud of the fact that I have an article in the 100th issue. It was kind of a happy accident that it worked out that way, but I'm glad it did. It's one half of a transcript of a panel that I was on with G-Fan publisher J.D. Lees, Mad Scientist Magazine's Martin Arlt, and others talking about how we first became Godzilla fans. Writing is the primary way I felt I could participate in the G-Fan and G-Fest community, and so I've submitted articles about displays Andy put together at our local library, along with movie reviews, a report on our experience with G-Fest guests at Chicago's Field Museum, interview transcripts, and even some fiction. I'm grateful that JD included my enthusiastic contributions in his periodical, and I think that in some ways it set the stage for other things I would eventually do, like writing for Small Town Monsters. The point of this aside is not to toot my own horn, but to express my thanks for being included in G-Fan to suggest that it gave me some confidence from a writer's perspective and to set up the following article taken from G-Fan number 118, January 2018, the 25th anniversary issue written by J.D. Lee's, it's called Minya at 50, a look back at Son of Godzilla. The year 1967 saw the Japanese kaiju ega industry 
hit its peak of production. Lovers of giant monsters enjoyed six homegrown creature features flickering on cinema screens that year, beginning with Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, released in late 1966, and followed by Gamera vs. Gaios, the X from Outer Space, Gappa, the Trifibian Monster, and King Kong Escapes. The Korean film Yangari Monster from the Deep was released in September of 1967 in that country and might also have been seen in Japan the same year. Finally, at the tail end, Toho released Son of Godzilla on December 16, 1967. It's been said that with Son of Godzilla, Toho crossed over the line into tailoring Godzilla features for kids. This is a superficial assessment. In reality, Son of Godzilla was merely continuing a trend, and there had been many instances where Godzilla was treated humorously and or anthropomorphized in previous films. For example, he clapped and seemed to laugh as he singed his opponent in King Kong vs. Godzilla, played volleyballer with Rodan and got zapped in the butt in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, performed the infamous jumping Shia in Monster Zero, and imitated the popular Young Guy series actor Yuzo Kayama's nose-scratch gesture in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. In fact, Ishiro Honda noted that Toho had watched the average age of Godzilla's audience drop precipitously during the early 1960s as the stories became less character-driven and more action-sci-fi oriented. Toho's marketing department had long shown great interest in appealing to as wide an audience as possible, and it's hardly a good strategy to tailor a film solely for the demographic, read kids, that's going to show up regardless. If anything, introducing the concept of family to the G-series smacks of an attempt to pull adults back in. After all, who's more interested in offspring and family dynamics than parents? By this stage in his career, Godzilla was no longer taken very seriously by the Japanese general public. Though the King of the Monsters had been a terrifying, destructive, and technically baffling construct to audiences of the 1950s, the carefully guarded secrets of Toho's kaiju special effects had been laid bare by the mid-60s, with Haruo Nakajima even appearing in the G-suit for department store displays. New angles and hooks were needed to recover the dwindling audience, the general audience, as opposed to kids and fans of Kaiju Ega, and introducing Godzilla's progeny probably seemed a worthwhile gambit. There are no aliens in Son of Godzilla, no gangsters, no conspiracies of world domination, though the story revolves around a sci-fi concept, weather control, the human part of the story is played straight. The script is literate, and several of the situations are not those that would be of particular interest to children, especially the mental disintegration of Furukawa or the romance between Goro and Riko. If anything, Toho may have been trying to broaden the audience to include young adults, both singles and also parents. Son of Godzilla opens with a plane flying through a storm at sea. The crew is made up of a pilot, 
a navigator, a radio operator, and a surveyor. All four are familiar faces in Toho movies, though definitely second stringers. Susumu Kurobe is most familiar to G-fans as Hayata, who turns into Ultraman in the original series. Though associated with Ultra Productions to this day, he also had many small parts in Toho Kaiju Ega, such as one of the assassins in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and an official in Godzilla vs. Mothra. Handsome Chotaro Togen's most prominent kaiju-related roles are as one of the adventurers in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, and Katsuo Yamabe's co-pilot in Destroy All Monsters. He also played a police detective in Godzilla's Revenge, and was driven insane by Gezera in Yogg, Monster from Space. Kazuo Suzuki is easily recognizable for his distinctive face, and he had small parts in eight G films, beginning with King Kong vs. Godzilla. His most prominent parts came in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster as the assassin that picks Princess Salno's locked door and as the smaller of the two robbers in Godzilla's Revenge. Wataru Ome was more nondescript in appearance and never had a prominent role in a Godzilla movie, though he did play a police officer in Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, a reporter in Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, and one of the Nebulans in Godzilla vs. Gigan. After sharing the airplane cabin in Son of Godzilla, all four actors would be reunited in Destroy All Monsters the following year. Togen and Ome as SY3 astronauts, and Kurobe and Suzuki as Monsterland techs under control of the Keylocks. Unexpectedly, the small plane encounters strange radio interference, and then Godzilla, first surfacing and then wading through the storm. The emergence of Godzilla is nicely framed by the windows of the plane. The model aircraft executes a rather unaerodynamic maneuver to avoid the Kaiju King, and the surveyor quickly calculates that Godzilla is heading on a course that will take him to a small island called Solgel. The Godzilla suit, inhabited by Haruo Nakajima, is the one used in Monster Zero and Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. It had seen lots of action in the water during the previous film, so it was revived for water scenes in Son of Godzilla to spare the new G-suit. Nakajima has stated that Godzilla's arrival on Solgel Island was filmed in a tank built in the huge Stage 9 building at Toho Studios. It's probable that the opening sequence was also filmed in that tank, as the action takes place very close to the painted backdrop, which would not have been necessary had the famous big pool been used for the scene. Filming in an enclosed location also allowed for better control of the rain, wind, and fog effects that were employed in the scene. Judging by the condition of the suit, the scenes where it is employed, the storm sequence, Godzilla's emergence near Solgel, and his wading ashore, were likely not filmed in the order they appear in the movie. First would have been wading across the very shallow Solgel shoreline, then the storm scene, and finally emerging from underwater in the big pool for the first appearance at Solgel Island. Due to water exposure, the eyes of the suit are very bugged out in his first appearance, 
but they somewhat match the look of the larger eyes on the brand new suit that was used for the bulk of filming. The opening sequence ends as Godzilla moves toward the camera, filling the screen and providing a dark background for the title card. This pre-credit sequence was somewhat of an innovation by director Jun Fukuda for the G-Series. His initial entry, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, also featured such a pre-credit sequence, but all previous films had begun with the standard credits and overture. In this regard, Fukuda left his mark on Godzilla movies, as most of the rest would commence with a pre-credit sequence as well. The sequence is important to the movie for several reasons. First, it gives the audience exposure to Godzilla right off the bat, very important to the impatient kids in the audience. It also establishes the idea of radio interference being associated with Godzilla, which plays an important part in later plot developments. And finally, it reveals Godzilla's destination, which foreshadows his eventual arrival on Solgel. Inexplicably, the opening sequence was cut from the initial American version, which jarringly began instead with Godzilla's approach toward the camera, disconnecting that very brief shot from the narrative to follow. Next comes the credit sequence, with text superimposed over shots of beaches, lagoons, and jungle vegetation, setting the location for the rest of the film. The sequence is accompanied by a catchy and rhythmic orchestration by Masaru Sato, also Fukuda's composer on Sea Monster. Compared to Akira Ifukube's sometimes heavy and somber compositions, Sato's style imparted a lighter and more modern atmosphere to the 60s and 70s G films he scored, which was an effect that Fukuda desired. Sato had previously created the score for Godzilla Raids Again, 12 years earlier. That work is understated and unremarkable without any memorable motifs. The reason, it was only Sato's second film score for a major studio. By the time Son of Godzilla came around, Sato had scored more than 120 movies. And he didn't slow down. With Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1974, his next G film, he had added 50 more to his credit. He remained busy right up to his death in 1999 at the age of 71, surpassing 300 film scores in total. A remarkable achievement by a very talented composer. It's too bad Toho didn't reach out to him for one of their Heisei Series G films. Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla would have been a good vehicle for him. U.S. version of Son of Godzilla's credit sequence retained both the travelogue Solgel visuals and the score, but omitted the credits. Since the film was not given a theatrical release but went directly to TV, the distributor, Walter Reed Sterling Continental, probably felt the credits were unnecessary and wanted to save the cost of translation. Translating the kanji characters for proper names frequently results in errors anyway as there are often multiple readings for individual kanji. As the credits play out, two figures are spotted moving through a jungle. 
Eventually arriving at a strange tower-like apparatus are Furukawa, played by Yoshio Tsuchiya, and Morio, played by Kenji Sahara. Morio, the junior member of the pair, he refers to Furukawa as senpai, a term of respect used by an inferior in Japan, calls in a report on the readings of the apparatus and is promptly chewed out by the unseen old man on the other end of the line for being imprecise in his report. Sahara and Tsuchiya are both easily recognizable G-stars. Sahara had been in four previous G-films, most famously as the villainous Torahada in Godzilla vs. The Thing, as well as Mothra, Rodan, War of the Gargantuas, and Frankenstein Conquers the World. He would go on to be featured in more Godzilla movies than any other actor, topping Haruo Nakajima by one. He also starred in the groundbreaking sci-fi TV series, Ultra Q. Tsuchiya, who specialized in playing quirky or troubled characters, had been prominently featured in many Toho sci-fi films prior to Son of Godzilla, including 2G films, Godzilla Raids Again, and Monster Zero as the controller. He would go on to play Dr. Otani in Destroy All Monsters and turn in a masterful performance as Yasuaki Shindo in Godzilla vs. King Ghidra. Tsuchiya passed away in April of 2017. After Furukawa grumbles about the incessant heat, the two are startled by a strange hissing sound off camera. They draw their rifles while Furukawa's comment, again, reveals that they are familiar with the source of the sound. The frame remains on the two men as the sound diminishes into the distance. The effect is to immediately alert the audience that there is some sort of dangerous creature inhabiting the island, and judging by the noise it makes, it's not a typical jungle animal. Director Fukuda has once again generated some early mystery and suspense. Son of Godzilla was Jun Fukuda's second Godzilla film following Sea Monster. Replacing series regular Ishiro Honda, Fukuda had previously been associated with action and gangster movies, a style that carried over into his Godzilla work. In later years, he expressed no fondness for his association with the King of the Monsters and denigrated the quality of his G-films. Nonetheless, he performed admirably with Son of Godzilla, drawing excellent performances from the cast and laying out the story in a well-paced and economical manner. Fukuda passed away in the year 2000 at the age of 77. Before Furukawa and Morio return to their camp, there's a nice establishing shot of Solgel Island. Actually, the location shots were all done in Guam, so the shot is of the shoreline with part of one of the camp buildings and one of the weather towers matted in. It's a brief shot, but it says a lot about the special effects in Son of G. Well, they're not spectacular, nothing explodes, nor are there any military attacks during the film, they are competently handled, integral to the story, and oftentimes innovative. Notching his first credit as director of special effects is Sadamasa Arakawa, who had worked under Eiji Tsuburaya on more than two dozen Toho sci-fi films, often as director of special effects photography. Though Arakawa did not get to show the full extent of his talents on Son of Godzilla, 
as it takes place on a tropical island, there are a few man-made structures to obliterate. He went on to direct the special effects of Destroy All Monsters, one of the most breathtaking special effects extravaganzas up to that time. Through a series of still shots, the audience is introduced to the scientific base camp. One of the signs explicitly states that the installation is located on Solgel Island, so we know that this is Godzilla's destination. It's identified as a United Nations base, but all the staff seems to be Japanese. Previously and subsequently in Destroy All Monsters, Toho placed some token Westerners in their United Nations groups, but not this time. The base is identified by the letters WFPO, which possibly stands for World Food Production Operation, but that's never actually stated in the movie. Furthermore, the camp is labeled both in Japanese and English, Sherbet Operation in Solgel, which hints at the group's mission. Sherbet is made by lowering the temperature of its ingredients, milk, sugar, fruit juices, salt, and vanilla, to sub-zero, just as the UN team intends to lower the temperature on the island. In the headquarters building, we see Dr. Kusumi supervising harried technician Ozawa as radio, radio operator Fujisaki looks on. After Kusumi leaves, Ozawa expresses his anxiety over having to meet the doctor's high standards, but says that it's his honor to serve under such a noted scientist. Born in 1930, Tadeo Takashima is one of the most recognizable G-Series actors due to his leading role in the most financially successful, widely seen G-film of all, King Kong vs. Godzilla. However, that film and Son of Godzilla were his only Godzilla roles until he appeared in a cameo in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, in 1993. His role as Dr. Kawaji in the widely distributed Frankenstein Conquers the World also contributed to his fan recognition. In Japan, however, he was far more famous for his musical and comedy roles and was incredibly busy during the late 50s and early 60s, logging 73 film roles from 1956 to 1962. After that, his output dropped precipitously. Son of Godzilla was his 110th film, but he would make only nine more to the present. Married in 1963, he devoted himself to family life. His two sons, Masahiro and Masanobu, have both starred in G-films of their own. Kenichiro Maruyama had a brief career during the 1960s at Toho. He also appeared in Sea Monster, and as one of the moon-based techs in Destroy All Monsters. Akihiko Hirata will forever be remembered as Dr. Serizawa in the original Godzilla. Described by his fellow actors as a real class act, he ultimately appeared in a total of seven G films and was intended for an eighth, the role of Dr. Hayashida in Godzilla 1985. Lung cancer cut his career short he died in 1984 at the young age of 56. Hirata, too, had a prolific career outside sci-fi. Son of Godzilla was his 101st movie role, and he completed 28 more before his untimely passing.
Ozawa and Fujisaki are startled by a sudden burst of radio interference, similar to that which was detected on the plane that encountered Godzilla. They're puzzling over the source when their radar detects an aircraft approaching Solgel. Rushing outside, they join the team and watch as an unidentified plane flies over the forest. Out of it tumble two objects billowing parachutes to break the fall. Landing just offshore, one of the objects is a human being. Running out to intercept the newcomer, Morio and Fujisaki discover a young man who greets them cheerfully and asks for help with his luggage. The role is played by Akira Kubo, last seen in the Godzilla universe as the nerdy inventor Tatsui, also known as Tetsuo, in Monster Zero. Kubo possessed a very youthful image at the time, but in fact, he was 31 years old when Son of Godzilla was released. He began his film career at the age of 15 and had about 60 features under his belt by the time of Son of Godzilla, including Throne of Blood and Sanjuro. His previous genre credits included Matango and Gorath. He went on to star in Destroy All Monsters and other sci-fi epics and continues acting in film and TV to this day. The newcomer introduces himself as Goro Maki, a freelance reporter who follows the smell of a good story. Dr. Kusumi is unimpressed and wants Maki to leave, though it isn't clear how that would be accomplished. Fujisaki suggests that Maki remain and pitch in as cook and cleaner for the encampment, though it appears the team has already been doing a bang-up job on their own. Everything in the camp is spotlessly clean and orderly, including their clothes, which look like they've just left the dry cleaners. The kitchen is sparkling and well-stocked, including cans of Byerly's orange drink strategically placed with their labels toward the camera. Byerly's was a frequent recipient of product placement in Toho movies in the 50s and 60s, sometimes even as tiny billboards in miniature cityscapes. The beverage was produced by the Asahi Beer Company after acquiring the rights in 1951 from General Foods in America. Though the drink was discontinued in America, it is still sold in Japan. Maki isn't thrilled with the offer, but accepts. Suddenly, he and Fujisaki are startled by the strange sound that Morio and Furukawa heard earlier, sort of a wheezing hiss. This brings the rest of the group from their cabins, Furukawa brandishing a rifle. At the edge of the jungle, the source of the sound appears. It's a huge praying mantis with glowing yellow eyes, appearing to be about eight or nine feet tall. The men of the camp have apparently encountered this creature before. They act familiar with it, and one is even smiling as he points it out. For the record, the actor is Shishiro Kuno, who had small roles in Destroy All Monsters, King Kong Escapes, and War of the Gargantuas during his relatively brief career. Goro grabs his camera, but is cautioned against venturing into the jungle after it. Furukawa fires at the thing, and it turns and retreats back into the forest. The scene ends with a fade to black. If Goro had any questions about the mantis, they were not included in the movie's scenario. He certainly should have. The largest known mantis in the world only reaches about 12 centimeters or 5 inches in length. The ones on Solgel Island are by far the largest insects ever known, 
a fact that draws no special comment from anyone in the UN party. There are about 2,400 species of mantis. Of concern to the UN team is that mantises are predators, grasping prey in their modified front legs and holding it to be devoured. Normal mantises don't hunt at night, both for fear of becoming prey to some other hunter and because they rely on vision to hunt. The large ones on Solgel certainly don't have to be concerned with being attacked by other animals, and perhaps they've evolved some sort of sense that allows them to find prey in the dark or at least in the dim light cast by their own glowing eyes. Some real mantises can hiss by quickly ejecting air out through the spiracles or breathing holes in their abdomen. Monster Study Group is very fortunate to have GFAN Magazine as a resource partner. GFAN is short for Godzilla Fan, of course, and it's created by the fans for the fans. Founded in 1992 by Canadian educator J.D. Lees, GFAN continues to be published on a quarterly basis, featuring interviews with those who have made and starred in classic Japanese special effects productions, in-depth analysis, behind-the-scenes reports, eye-popping artwork, collectible roundups, book reviews, information about G-Fest, and subscriber-exclusive inserts such as press book reproductions and posters. G-Fan is your ticket to Kaiju Paradise, a.k.a. Solgel Island. Do yourself a favor and look into a subscription in the U.S. It's $25 for one year for issues. A two-year eight-issue subscription is $45, and international subscriptions are also available. You can sign up today at g-fan.com, and while you're there, check out the back issues that are available, just $6 a piece plus shipping. I've been a subscriber for years, and there's always room for new voices, but find out for yourself. Visit g-fan.com. That's g-fan.com. And now, back to Son of Godzilla. The next day, Maki heads out into the jungle to look for a type of vegetable for dinner. The men call it Solgel parsley, but it appears to actually be a common type of bush and likely not edible. Maki's wanderings take him to a rocky outcropping overlooking a bay, in which he spies a beautiful young lady enjoying a swim. Taking out his camera, Maki jostles a rock with his foot, a recurring issue with him, alerting the woman to his presence and causing her to disappear beneath the surface of the water. Was she real or a beautiful mirage? Fukuda adds another mystery to the file. Later at supper, as the scientific team discusses staging their experiment the next day, Maki inquires as to whether they're concerned by the fate of the native girl. 
all the men expressed disbelief that there is anyone else on Salgel. The island was thoroughly surveyed. Furukawa erupts at any suggestion of delay and angrily leaves the table. Another team member named Suzuki also seems bothered, getting up to grab a can of Byerly's. He is played by Yasuhiko Saijo, who also had small roles in Gorath and Godzilla vs. Gigan as one of the aliens. Saijo's most notable role was as Ipe Togawa, the cheerful pilot in the Japanese sci-fi teleseries Ultra Q. Maki questions Dr. Kusumi about the necessity of their experiment. The doctor replies that the increasing world population makes it necessary to bring currently unproductive land under cultivation by controlling the weather. Concerns about overpopulation were in vogue in the 1960s and 70s, and Kusumi says that the limit is rapidly being approached. Many scientists and authors were likewise ringing alarm bells in those days. However, in 1967, the world's population of humans was 3.5 billion. Now, it's 7.5 billion and living conditions have, on average, improved considerably. Furthermore, the rate of population increase peaked in the late 1960s and has been dropping ever since. Momentum from the large cohort of young people is expected to carry the increase to stabilization at just over 11 billion people. So overpopulation has ceased to be a major concern for most people, and the doom criers have moved on to other topics. Come morning, the UN crew jumps into enthusiastic action, preparing for the experiment, checking equipment and readying apparatus, all to the rhythmic beat of Masaru Sato's energetic score. The sequence is well edited and actually exciting. Meanwhile, Maki has taken off to look for the girl he saw the day before. He wants to warn her of potential danger from the weather control experiment. Dr. Kusumi notices Maki is AWOL and orders an alarm to sound to alert him that the experiment is about to begin. It's a nice touch that shows Kusumi, who was annoyed that Maki joined them, still has concern for the young man and doesn't want to jeopardize his safety. As Maki returns to the Overlook in a fruitless attempt to find the girl, the countdown reaches zero and a yellow box-like device loaded with freezing gas is borne aloft by a balloon. At 800 meters in altitude, Fujisaki pushes a button labeled Directional Coupler to detonate the device, resulting in warm air being drawn upward. Rotors on two giant towers installed on the island begin to spin and eject silver iodide particles. Once the temperature has dropped from 34 degrees Celsius to 25 degrees, Dr. Kusumi orders the island be reheated, a process that involves the release of a radioactive balloon. Actually, it's a balloon carrying a spherical silver device with antennae sticking out of it. However, after the balloon is released, interference of the same kind Fujisaki and Ozawa experienced before cuts communication between the control center and the balloon. If it detonates too soon, frets Dr. Kusumi, it will cause a reverse reaction and the upper atmosphere will work like a convex lens. Sure enough, the balloon explodes, releasing a radioactive storm over Salgel Island. 
the temperature quickly rises to 70 degrees Celsius corresponding to 158 degrees Fahrenheit. According to Guinness, the hottest confirmed temperature ever recorded was 134 degrees Fahrenheit on July 10, 1913 in Death Valley, California. Thunderstorms unleash hot rains that cascade down the hillsides and sweep away trees. The role of the released radioactivity is not explained, nor is there any shot or mention of Maki returning to the camp before the storm breaks. Perhaps he ran back just before the heat got too intense. Four days later, the temperature has dropped back to 37 degrees Celsius, 99 degrees Fahrenheit, and the men leave their domiciles. They find a very muddy, debris-strewn mess, and their buildings and equipment are dirty and corroded, but otherwise, nothing much has changed on Solgel. All subsequent scenes show no difference in the scenery or vegetation of the island, which seems unlikely to be the case after such unrivaled heat. Nor do any of the men express concerns about lingering radiation or even test for its presence. Instead, they begin an ordered systems check before Dr. Kusumi can decide whether to press on or give up. Kusumi takes a walking tour of the island with Goro acting as his personal photographer, a role that seems to annoy the good doctor. It's said that Tadeo Takashima did not want to fly to Guam for location shooting, and the tour sequence only shows the Kusumi character on Guam from the back, or in extreme long shots. It does seem that the actor filmed from behind is smaller than Takashima, and he swings his arms more when he walks, so there's good reason to believe that Takashima did indeed not go to Guam. Still, the sequence of shots is very cleverly and convincingly staged. In fact, probably the only actors to accompany director Fukuda to Guam were Kubo, Tsuchiya, Sahara, Hirata, and Beverly Maida. None of the others are filmed in an actual Guam location. The scenes in the base camp or near the weather towers were all filmed on sound stages at Toho Studios. As the two continue, Maki mentions the girl he saw, saying without any apparent remorse that she must have surely died from the heat. At the same time, birds are chirping in the lush jungle, so clearly the heat was not deadly to all living things. Suddenly, Maki and Kusumi hear a familiar hissing noise. One of the mantids moves across in front of them, but it's humongous, towering almost 50 meters in height. Dr. Kusumi speculates that the heat and radioactivity caused it to balloon to its present size. A convenient explanation, but one that raises more questions than it answers. For example, why only the mantids and not other living things on the island? And what happened to the radioactivity? Were the UN team exposed to it? Another mantis appears behind the two men, and they head to nearby Tower Number 1 to call for help. The giant mantids, later to be dubbed Kamakuris by Maki, the Japanese word for mantis is Kamakiri, the beasts are called Gymantis in the English version, are effective monsters, well-sculpted, textured, detailed, and colored. With moving mechanical mouth parts, they are otherwise operated as marionettes with concealed wires from above the soundstage. 
They're photographed very cleverly, with the camera looking up through the trees and foliage giving them an impression of towering height. The shots of Kusumi and Maki taking refuge in Tower Number 1 are extremely clever and well-composed, involving the connecting of a live-action shot of the two humans in the base of the tower with a model of the rest of the tower, then combining it with a background shot of the passing monster, an overlaid mid-ground set of foliage, and matte-painted structures and jungle foliage in the foreground all blended virtually seamlessly. Furthermore, Sato composed a marvelous theme for the trio of Kamakuras. They are joined by one more that well represents an army of marching, menacing monsters. The only significant problems with the Kamakuras involve their movement. It's obvious that their limbs are not supporting the weight of the wire-supported creatures, and the legs move rather randomly as the bodies glide forward. Nowadays, a first-class group of professional puppeteers could probably pull it off, but with the typically brief Japanese shooting schedule, the Toho techs were not quite ready for the task. The three insect kaiju are not actually interested in human prey at this time. They converge around a strange mound that Kusumi identifies as the location of the interfering radio waves. Pounding away at the rock pile, the monsters unearth an egg, dislodging it from its resting place. In a cute shot, the heads of the Kamakuras turn in unison to the egg, clearly identifying it as the focus of their attention. The next scene is a meeting of the team, where Kusumi announces that repairs will take 10 days. Hurakawa and Suzuki vote to leave, but Maki sides with the rest of the team. Strangely, no one suggests that they are all in danger from the gigantic mantids. Suddenly, there is a noise outside, and the men rush out to investigate Furukawa with his ever-ready rifle. Maki notices his shirt is missing from where he hung it out to dry. In a nearby tree, they spot the mysterious girl. Furukawa tries to shoot her, but Maki spoils his aim by batting the rifle barrel down. The illusion of the shot is created, not by having the rifle discharge, but by triggering a small explosive that had been pre-planted in the ground near the tip of the rifle barrel. Before another move can be made, the girl swings away, Tarzan-like, into the darkness. The next morning, presumably, the Kamakuras are still pounding away on the giant egg, observed by Maki and Morio in an excellent mat shot. Unnoticed by the men, the native girl is also watching. The eggshell shatters, and a baby monster rolls out, immediately identified by Maki as a baby Godzilla. The quick identification has been criticized as unlikely by some fans, but surely Maki was expecting some kind of giant creature to hatch from the egg. At the time, the only other widely known monsters were Anguirus, Rodan, Mothra, Kong, and Ghidra. It's clearly not related to them, so it's not unlikely that Maki might have guessed the link to Godzilla right off the bat. Our first look at the infant monster is not reassuring. It is sort of cute in a weird way, those big eyes and plaintive cries, but it's not very well detailed, has no skin texture, and its limbs don't move convincingly. It also kind of flies out of the egg, 
In fact, like the Kamakaris, the baby kaiju is a sort of puppet, operated by wires or hidden rods and probably filled with foam rubber. As the mantid's claws strike it, the skin indents just like foam rubber would. Terrified, it covers its eyes, or at least someone moved the hands to cover its eyes while the camera was on the advancing Kamakaris. Back at base camp, shots ring out, and the three junior members of the team spill out of one of the cabins. Furukawa has finally snapped and waves his rifle menacingly. Someone should have hidden it on him long before this point. He runs out to the beach with Fujisaki in pursuit. Remember, the other three actors in Takashima didn't go to Guam, so they're not available to participate in this scene. Furukawa collapses into the shallows, then the two men notice a great upswelling in the ocean beyond. Something is moving toward shore at a rapid pace. Rearing up out of the frothing water is Godzilla. It's still the Monster Zero G-suit. The two men react in horror, then flee the beach. The scene where Godzilla strides to shore with the men running across the beach is absolutely masterful in its construction and composition, a splendid example of miniature set construction, camera angle, and superb lighting. Haruo Nakajima has recalled this scene as a difficult one, being towed toward the edge of the Toho pool on an underwater platform by a truck with cables while gripping a stabilizing bar then surfacing on cue. That's probably partially a false memory. No part of Godzilla is seen during the underwater approach, and it's unlikely a suit actor in costume would have been used for the shot. Most likely, an inanimate object was dragged through the water to create the oncoming wake. Then there's a cut to a reaction shot by Furukawa and Fujisaki, and when the camera returns to Godzilla, the scene has changed. No outcroppings in the water's foreground, and submerged apparatus for creating turbulence has been situated and activated around the rising monster. Still, straightening up in the waterlogged G-suit must have required all of Nakajima's strength. The scene of Godzilla striding towards the Solgel shoreline is the last we see of Haro Nakajima in Son of Godzilla. He wore the Monster Zero suit because it was built for him, but a larger Godzilla was required for the scenes with Minya to make the junior kaiju look smaller by comparison. So a new taller suit was created for the film with larger, kindlier eyes and reduced projection of the muzzle, possibly to resemble more closely the look of its purported offspring. Mythology has it that the new suit was worn by two actors, Seiji Onaka, until he broke his fingers playing baseball, and then Hiroshi Sekita for the remainder of the film. The latter is in doubt, or perhaps Sekita filmed only very briefly because the authoritative book History of Toho Special Effects Movies, edited by none other than producer Tomiyuki Tanaka himself, lists Nakajima and Onaka as playing Godzilla, but not Sekita. The Pictorial Book of Godzilla, volume number one, gives the same information. 
Godzilla makes a beeline to where the Kamakuras are attacking Minya, trashing the UN encampment along the way. Morio opines that the radio interference was Minya's call to Godzilla, then he and Maki beat a hasty retreat. After separating, Maki stumbles down into some sort of hole in the ground. The fight between Godzilla and the Kamakuras is brief and uneventful. Two of the mantids pass and shoot a rock at Godzilla in the manner of a hockey puck, hitting Minya in the face, but there's never any sense that the insects are a threat to Godzilla. He quickly ends the lives of two with his atomic ray, while the third takes flight to escape. After accidentally bopping the hapless Minya with his tail, Godzilla strolls off to survey the area. Godzilla's absence gives the native girl a chance to make contact with Minya by singing him a special note. As he sees her, the bouncy and comical Minya theme is heard, searing itself into the brains of G-fans forever. The girl tosses Minya a large fruit, which lands in his mouth, seeming to please him. Godzilla's return sends the girl running in the form of a small doll moving out of frame at the bottom of the picture. Minya rises clumsily to his feet. A pudgy body with misshapen face, no neck, and bent arms and legs that look like they were glued on. He moves stiffly to Godzilla's proffered tail and climbs aboard, then rides happily away as the big G ambles off into the jungle. The native girl passes through an area where plants are dusted with webby-looking strands. Then enters a concealed cave. She's startled to find Maki, just regaining consciousness on the cave floor. Maki doesn't see the girl, but he does spot his missing shirt on a nearby table, one of several pieces of rudimentary furniture that populate the cave. As he reaches for the garment, a knife pierces the air and embeds itself in the table near his hand. It is then that Maki sees the mysterious native girl, who accuses him in fluent Japanese of being a thief. He turns the tables on her, saying that the shirt is his, but then offers it to her as a gift. Put at ease, the girl says her name is Seiko, Reiko in the American version. Reiko is played by then 19-year-old actress and model Beverly Maida. Born to an American father and Japanese mother, some sources place her birth in Australia some in Japan. Son of Godzilla was only her fourth feature film, and soon after she married, abandoning movies to pursue a successful career as a dancer and stage performer. But not before co-starring with Akira Takarada in the action-packed spy spoof 100 Shot, 100 Killed. Since 2008, she has returned to acting and has been busy with television work up to the present. Maida brought beauty to the role of Reiko, but also a strength and athleticism that an actress like Kumi Mizuno lacked. It's believable that Reiko survived as an orphan on Solgel because she projects confidence and resourcefulness. For example, when she outruns a panting Maki, she asks him, what kind of man are you? In this way, she continues the Toho trend of strong women characters that are important to the storyline 
an image at odds with the real-life roles played by most Japanese women at the time. Director Fukuda has said that Maida was difficult to work with, but if so, it doesn't come across in her performance, while her charm and beauty certainly do. Dr. Matsumiya, Reiko's father and deceased for seven years, left several notebooks on his archaeology work after the war on Salgel and presumably other Pacific Islands. His book on Salgel is dated 1955, and since he apparently died in 1960, that leaves an unexplained gap of five years. It's also strange that though Dr. Kusumi knows about Dr. Matsumiya, his ultimate fate was not investigated and Reiko rescued from her isolation on Salgel. Also, why Reiko should have deliberately avoided contact with the scientific team who could have rescued her makes little sense. Before any of these matters can be addressed, a Kamakaris attacks the camp. Luckily, Morio, Ozawa, and Furukawa have rifles handy. Yes, Furukawa still has a gun, despite having gone berserk earlier that day, and they drive the giant predator away. Amid concerns for the safety of the team and their equipment, Maki suggests, without consulting Reiko, that they move the whole operation into her cave home. Without warning, Reiko has acquired eight male roommates, which sounds like the basis for an interesting reality show, The Bachelorette Meets Gilligan's Island. However, none of the men besides Maki shows any interest in Reiko, which is probably for the best in terms of keeping the monsters at the center of the plot. Meanwhile, beside a bubbling pool of red-colored water, Minya frolics, jumping over his resting father's twitching tail. The previous rod puppet has been replaced by an actor in a Minya costume. The role is played by Little Man Machan, a former midget professional wrestler in Japan. Machan was asked to return as Minya for both Destroy All Monsters and Godzilla's Revenge. Just as toddlers are generally cuter than newborn babies, the Minya suit is a considerable improvement over the rod puppet. The face is cuter and more symmetrical, and the body has a little more texture. Tiny Godzilla-like fins have sprouted from Minya's back. It's easy to imagine Japanese audiences smiling when this version of Minya appears on screen. The next scene shows Reiko and Maki running along a beach with Maki collapsing out of breath and being chided by Reiko for his lack of physical fitness. She hugs him happily after he promises to take her back to Tokyo, a man-made jungle, but Maki recoils in alarm when Minya appears. Reiko reassures him, calling to the juvenile kaiju with her special note and then tossing him another fruit in the same manner as before. Godzilla shows up, causing Reiko and Maki to run off in a well-composed shot. Godzilla seems to chastise Minya for fraternizing with the humans, and in response, Minya falls to the ground in a tantrum, braying like a donkey. Resignedly, Godzilla grabs Minya's tail and drags him back into the jungle. Minya exhibits an amazing repertoire of sounds. When contented, he gives off bird-like hoots, when upset, he sounds like a jackass. When uncomfortable, he whines like a dog. In times of stress, he makes a noise like a cat trapped in an elevator door. 
and he expresses his affection for Godzilla by chanting, Wah, wah. The variety of noises, though strange, really help to show the young kaiju's emotions in a film that takes the expression of monster sentiment to unprecedented levels. Back at the cave, Dr. Kusumi and Fujisaki are puzzling over a strange reference in Dr. Matsumiya's notebooks, Kumanga. Suddenly, Morio enters, collapsing in the grip of a high fever. Furukawa and the other team members have also come down with the disease. After letting them all suffer for a little while, Reiko reveals a cure, the warm red water in the pool where Godzilla and Minya have taken up residence. Fetching it will be dangerous, not only because of the father and son, but because the route passes the valley of Kumanga, a gigantic spider that is fortunately sleeping at the moment. Dr. Kusumi advises that the web of the spider can be cut by heat. Given that he knows of the web and that kumo is the Japanese word for spider, it's strange that the good doctor couldn't figure out the probable identity of a creature named Kumanga. When passing the area where Kumanga sleeps underground, Reiko cautions Maki to be careful. He promptly trips over a rock. As they resume their journey, Goro dislodges some rocks, sending them clattering down into the spider's pit. As they wait tensely for a response that doesn't come, Reiko is probably wondering what kind of a klutz she's getting involved with. Arriving at the crater of the warm red water, Reiko and Maki observe that Godzilla teaches his son to roar and breathe fire. Maki opines that Godzilla is acting like a Kyoiku mama or Kyo Ikupapa, a parent that obsessively pushes his child to work harder in school. Reiko expresses disapproval, but having lived in the outside world, Maki isn't so sure that's a bad thing. Minya is unable to produce anything stronger than a radioactive smoke ring until Godzilla stamps on his tail, eliciting a full-fledged atomic ray blast. Minya's ability to produce it certainly cements their connection as members of the same species, if not the same family. But it's puzzling nonetheless. Godzilla's ray and radioactivity is supposed to be a remnant of exposure to H-bomb testing and marks him as a symbol of the dangers of nuclear weapons. Minya has not received H-bomb exposure, so how could he fire an atomic beam? One explanation is that Godzilla's power predated the H-bomb exposure. After all, the idea that the H-bomb gave him his ray is only a theory. Therefore, Minya's ray could be the result of heredity. Alternatively, the exposure of the giant egg to the radioactive storm on Salgel Island possibly reproduced the power in Minya that his dad obtained from the H-bomb. Reiko and Maki manage to collect the red water and return to the cave. Before they can administer it to Furukawa, he, you guessed it, grabs a rifle and shoots Dr. Kusumi, a scratch, before collapsing once again. However, the red water soon does its work and the UN team is once again at full strength. Nonetheless, Dr. Kusumi decides that things have gone so badly wrong that the experiment must be aborted. 
Reiko is out looking for herbs to treat Dr. Kusumi's wound when she nearly bumps smack into a resting Kamakuras. The beast chases her and knocks her unconscious with its claw, a full-size prop, but not before she manages to sing her Minya calling note. Sure enough, the little monster arrives to confront the mantid, but his smoke ring only irritates the giant arthropod. The battle between the two dislodges rocks that disturb the sleeping Kumanga, and it begins to emerge from underground. Godzilla arrives and drives off the Kamakuras with two blasts of atomic heat. The creature flies off, but as Reiko and Maki flee, Kumanga sprays its web, trapping the two in the tangling strands. Remembering Dr. Kusumi's advice, Maki uses his lighter to break free of the web. He and Reiko take refuge in a cleft in the rock, but the spider sprays again, then reaches in with a full-size prop claw. Maki's bullets repel the claw, his lighter frees them once again, and the two make their escape by climbing up the rock wall. Kumanga, or Spiga in the U.S. version, is an effective monster, well-detailed and suitably hairy and ugly. Sato's theme for the creature is light and tingly, like a spider crawling across one's skin. The life-size web strands ejected over Reiko and Maki integrate well with the ones sprayed by the model spider. Like the Kamakuras, Kumanga is a marionette monster with a leg span of five meters. Its limbs seem to move more realistically than those of the giant mantids, possibly because there's less space between the body of the spider and the ground upon which it crawls. Also, Kumanga is less frequently shown fully within the camera's frame, making the movement of its limbs less critical. Nonetheless, it still reportedly required upwards of 20 puppeteers to control the spider's movements at times. Reiko and Maki encounter Dr. Kusumi at one of the weather towers when Kumanga crawls by without noticing them. However, once they're ensconced in the cave, Morio discovers that the mammoth spider has webbed over the entrance and waits outside. Its claw reaches in, grabbing Suzuki until his compatriots can free him. Though the party is trapped, Fujisaki manages to repair the radio broken during Godzilla's initial rampage. place an antenna outside the cave to send an SOS. Maki and Reiko exit through the water-filled passage she used to escape his observation the first time he saw her. Minya spots the two and in another great composite shot, waddles over to greet them. They give him the brush off and he wanders away dejectedly, only to be confronted by the hideous Kumanga. As the two beasts spar, Minya's footfalls cause rocks to drop from the ceiling of the cave imperiling the party below. Fujisaki announces that he has made contact with a rescue ship, and it's on its way. Dr. Kusumi suggests restarting their experiment in order to immobilize the monsters with freezing temperatures. Furukawa, seemingly having recovered his senses and his sense of purpose, enthusiastically agrees. The men and Reiko race out to the old campsite to ready the equipment. Kumanga sprays its web at Minya, and the little kaiju tries to defend with his atomic ray. However, he's soon overwhelmed and trapped, and he falls to the ground. 
Even then, he tries to burn his way out of the webbing, which gives Kumanga pause. Unexpectedly, the last Kamakaris appears, and Kumanga turns his attention to the new prey. He quickly entangles Kamakaris in his web and advances on the helpless insect. The weather control operation commences, and the explosion of the freezing balloon wakes Godzilla from his nap. This is the third instance of Godzilla sleeping during the movie, a concept introduced by Fukuda in Sea Monster, where the big guy spent most of the film dozing off or asleep. He arises and moves through the jungle, passing by one of the weather towers that has begun ejecting silver iodide into the air. Kumanga stabs Kamakaris with a presumably deadly stinger near its mouth, and then turns to Minya to do the same. As Minya calls to Godzilla, the radio equipment in the control center is affected once more by interference, but as Godzilla passes, the interference fades. Before Kumanga can stab Minya, Godzilla tosses a boulder onto the spider, who flips onto his back. Then, as Godzilla tears at the webs and trapping Minya, Kumanga rights itself and begins to spray Godzilla. Minya gets to his feet as Godzilla defends with his atomic ray. Kumanga tries to retreat, but Godzilla follows, hitting the arachnid once more with a radioactive heat blast. The spider returns fire with its web, tangling Godzilla and pulling him to the ground, then continuing the barrage. The radioactive balloon explodes. It's one of those patented dump cloudy liquid into a tank of water with a sky background explosions, and the temperature around the island begins to plunge. Kuzumi, Fujisaki, Maki, and Reiko head for the beach, where the latter two have inflated a life raft. At the same time, Minya distracts Kumanga with his atomic ray, giving Godzilla a chance to strike back with his. Kumanga draws in his legs, and Godzilla kicks him upside down. As Godzilla moves in for a closer look at his prone opponent, sneaky Kumanga hits him in the right eye with his stinger. Godzilla reels back and Kumanga rights himself. Out in the life raft, the UN team cheer as snow begins to fall over Salgel Island. The monsters continue their battle in the midst of a blizzard, a scenario unique in Kaiju Ega. Kumanga raises itself up as high as Godzilla, then crashes into the Monster King, knocking him to the ground and crawling on top of him. Minya uses his ray to blast the spider off his father, and Godzilla regains his feet as Kumanga attempts a web attack once more. But this time, Godzilla is ready with his ray, vaporizing the web spray in the air before it can reach him. He looks at Kumanga with his cloudy right eye, an interesting point of view shot by Fukuda, and then strikes the spider bodily with his ray once, then again. Kumanga once more assumes the prone position, and Godzilla encourages Minya to join him in a final assault. Together, the two great beasts combine their rays to set Kumanga alight. Godzilla roars in triumph, and Minya too, manages a fairly Godzillian roar. Reportedly, two Kumanga marionettes were created for the film, so one was left intact to appear in a few scenes of Destroy All Monsters the following year. 
From the life raft, there's an animated view of snow falling on Salgel as ice forms along the shore. A scene was filmed where Godzilla approaches the frozen shore. It wasn't used in the movie, but can be briefly seen in the film's Japanese trailer. Back inland, Minya struggles through the deepening snow, falling down. He whines pathetically as Godzilla turns back and embraces his shivering son. A plaintive and poignant melody accompanies the scene, one which certainly must touch all but the hardest G-Fan's heart. Maki assures a sympathetic Reiko that the two won't die, but only hibernate until warmth returns. There's a nice shot of Solgel in the snow, with one of the weather towers visible in the distance, then a longer shot of the life raft bobbing in the ocean with the island beyond. They are two very impressive shots that show the crew's commitment to quality right up to the very end of the film. Suddenly, a turbulence approaches the life raft. Is it another monster? No, it's a surfacing submarine come to fetch the team. They all laugh with relief. We get a couple of last looks at Godzilla and his son huddled together in the snow. Maki says they'll live peacefully after the snow melts. Reiko whispers sayonara, and the orchestra swells to one of the most evocative and impressive closing themes in the history of G-films. Son of Godzilla is a good, if not spectacular, G-film that includes some significant departures from the formulas employed in previous series installments. It is fast-paced, well-balanced between humans and monsters, and contains many remarkable special effect shots. The monsters are consistently filmed from low angles and through foreground foliage, imparting an impression of great size. The characters are interesting and well-acted, and their storylines are cleverly integrated with the activities of the monsters. However, the manner in which Godzilla and Minya were portrayed potentially diminished their stature and credibility. As an attempt by Toho to expand the audience for Godzilla movies, the film largely failed. Son of Godzilla dropped to 2,480,000 tickets sold, down nearly a million from Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster the previous year. Perhaps as a result, Toho turned back to Ishiro Honda, Akira Ifukube, and another sci-fi space invasion for the subsequent G-film, Destroy All Monsters. After that article, there's not a whole lot more to be said about the movie, but I did want to comment that I have a real soft spot for it, especially the Godzilla Minya interactions, which of course includes the ending. I just like everything about it. The unbelievable cast, the music, special effects. It's a fun, colorful, exuberant film. 
and it introduces the reasonable and kid-friendly concept of monster progeny, which would have a significant impact on the series lasting all the way to 2004's Godzilla Final Wars. For a quick explanation, let's turn to G-Fan number 106 from summer 2014 and an article by Dave Coleman entitled Sons of Godzilla, A Brief History of the Heirs to the Throne. When Godzilla first roared onto the screen in 1954, the last thing audiences expected him to become was a loving parent. Yet, as his image softened and his target audience trended younger and younger, a stern but protective father figure became one of the many personae Godzilla would assume. There was no hint of any little Godzillas in the world until 1967, the year Son of Godzilla was released in Japan. Out of a mysterious egg discovered on Salgel Island hatched a creature resembling the Pillsbury Doughboy. The newborn's body structure superficially resembled that of Godzilla, including some rows of incipient spines in the dorsal area. All doubt was removed, however, when the King of the Monsters suddenly arrived on the scene to defend the hatchling from a band of attacking gymantuses. The baby, later to become known as Minya, was quite helpless at first, unable to walk and, unlike the typical reptile, totally reliant on his parent for survival. Within a matter of hours, however, Minya had grown to about triple his initial size, and become coordinated enough to walk on his own. That initial spurt marked the end of Minya's growth, however. He had not noticeably changed even by the time of Destroy All Monsters in 1999. The appearance of Minya immediately raised troubling questions among Godzilla watchers around the world. Long assumed to be male, suddenly Godzilla's gender was called into question. Had Godzilla laid the egg from which Minya hatched? Or was he simply a dutiful father, much in the manner of crocodilian dads who are known to assist their progeny? In Son of Godzilla, Reiko posed the same question, and Goro affirmed Godzilla's maleness. Fanboys everywhere breathed a sigh of relief. Minya joined the gang up on King Ghidra at the climax of Destroy All Monsters, but never really became a fan favorite in the Toho universe, and his star quickly faded. In Godzilla's Revenge the following year, he was the main focus of the film, but since the story took place in a child's fantasy world, Minya's very existence was cast in doubt. He appeared briefly in Godzilla vs. Gigan via stock footage, as a resident of Monster Island, but after that, neither hide nor scale was seen of him. Until Godzilla Final Wars, that is. Director Ryuhei Kitamura returned Minya to the real world, size-changing ability and all. He played a pivotal role at the end of the film, 
Indeed, it can be said that Don Fry, Akira Takarada, Kumi Mizuno, and Kenji Sahara all owe their lives to Minya's intervention. What better reason could there be for G-fans to love him? With the advent of the Heisei series of G-films, Toho couldn't resist trying to reinvent the character of a young Godzilla. Once again, a mysterious egg hatches, this time releasing a human-sized Godzillasaurus baby. According to the story, the egg was laid by an ancient Godzillasaur, cuckoo-like, in a Rodan's nest. Inexplicably, both Egg and Rodan have survived the ages and improbably Godzilla arrives on the scene. Cuckoo mothers abandon their offspring and the fathers don't even stick around for the laying. Like Minya, who eats oranges, the hatchling baby is also a vegetarian. His tastes run to roses, however. The rest of the movie is spent trying to keep him from his squabbling parents, but by the end he's following Daddy Godzilla into a watery exit. Much more care was taken to make Baby look more anatomically dinosaurian than was the case with Minya. Though deserving an A for effort, the effect was somewhat undone by the release of Jurassic Park the same year, which unleashed utterly realistic movie dinosaurs on the world at last. Baby's first growth spurt turned him into Little Godzilla for the next in the series, Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. No doubt, growing up amidst the radioactive strata on Birth Island affects his metabolism, for his height quickly increased by a factor of about 25. He also suffered from an affliction common to many modern youngsters, obesity. With green skin and saucer eyes, the design of Little Godzilla did not exactly catch on with G-fans. Special effects director Koichi Kawakita has stated that Little Godzilla is his favorite among his creations. No one is sure whether he's joking or not, and no one dares ask. The next stage, Godzilla Jr. in Godzilla vs. Destroya, found greater favor among fans, more closely resembling his father, Junior also proved himself to be a spunky fighter by taking on a giant crab form destroyer and coming out a winner. It's genuinely heartbreaking when he is later murdered by the adult destroyer and inspirational when he assumes the mantle of Monster King by absorbing his disintegrated father's released radiation. Unfortunately, that's where it ended. In spite of a tease by G-Series executive producer Shogo Tomiyama Jr. as Godzilla was never seen again. Instead, the American studio TriStar unleashed their own Godzilla, the offspring of which borrowed liberally from Jurassic Park before all being consumed in a fiery inferno. Or not quite all. One slow hatcher found his way to starring in a fairly successful and entertaining Saturday morning cartoon, Godzilla the Series. It lasted for two seasons and has recently been released on DVD.
Dave Coleman's article brings us to the conclusion of another session of Monster Study Group, which means only one time slot remains on the syllabus. The final installment of The Son of Summer will post August 28th, and it will be a bit of a surprise that I hope that you'll enjoy. Maybe not as much as taking the class outside for a game of kickball, but close enough. Until then, follow me over at Instagram, where each week I update my beta capsule reviews for Monster Kid Radio. And feel free to write to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com. I would love to make your communication part of the curriculum. GFAN is published by Daikaiju Enterprises Limited, and written consent was obtained to present today's articles. Once again, Thanks for listening, and I sincerely hope you will keep studying monsters. Uh-huh.